Hello and welcome to the Journal of Medical Imaging Radiation Sciences podcast. JMIRS is the Journal of the Canadian Association of Medical Radiation Technologists and we publish in the fields of diagnostic imaging and radiation therapy. My name is Amanda Balderston and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of JMIRS. All right, so I'm really happy today to be talking to Lena and Natasha and I'm talking to them about their recent paper that we've published called Making Mammography Inclusive for patients with disabilities. And as I've just said to them, I just reread this and I think it's an absolutely fantastic paper that's gonna make a really big difference. So I'm gonna start by introducing them both. Um, Lena Anderson is a, an author, advocate, accessibility consultant and photographer, and she lives in Toronto, Canada. She's dedicated to using her lived experience and professional expertise to advocate for accessibility and inclusion of those living with chronic illness and disability. Lena is the author of The Seated View, which is an award-winning blog, and several books on living well with chronic illness. And we've also got Natasha Batchelor. Natasha's a mammographer and a breast imaging navigator supervisor with over 10 years of experience. Natasha's been involved in the disability world throughout both her personal life and her career. She wrote her master's thesis on breast cancer in people with intellectual disabilities. She's created course material on strategies to image people with disabilities, as well as a resource for primary care providers on the accessibility of mammography sites in York Region, Ontario. So welcome both of you. Um, it's great to Thank be you. able to talk to you about your paper. And we've got a few questions, um, but let's just get going and see if um, anything else comes up. That's fine too. So can we start by telling um, the people that are listening a little bit about yourselves and how you guys came to write the paper? You want to go first, Natasha? Sure. <laughs> so I've been working in breast imaging for over 10 years. I've been in front, a frontline technologist uh, doing frontline patient care work, working with patients doing the actual mammograms themselves. I've also been a breast coordinator, coordinating the breast care for women from screening to diagnosis and supporting them along that pathway. And then in my current role, as a I'm a supervisor in a breast imaging department. How we kind of came here is, or for at least for me, getting involved in some disability work was I do have a sibling with an intellectual disability, which led me to doing my master's thesis on breast cancer in people with intellectual disabilities and their state age and stage at diagnosis. Um, and then my role, one of my roles as a, an MRT auditor led me to noticing, I guess, the gap that there is in terms of education for people with, um, for mammographers who are providing services to people with disabilities and uh, creating course materials and uh, resources to support the technologists because there really is a huge gap there in terms of education for us. If we're seeking it, there's really almost nothing to find. <laughs> so that's a bit problematic in and of itself. And then how we came to write this paper, I was contacted by Amanda, um, who saw my webinar that I did on mammography in patients with physical disabilities. And uh, from there contacted me that asked if I would be interested in co-authoring this paper. And I thought it was such an amazing opportunity to bring more awareness to this very important area. Yeah, thanks, Natasha. And Lena, can you tell us about how you became involved? Um, yeah, I've been, uh, well, I've had a disability since I was a teen. Um, I've had rheumatoid arthritis, which growing up in the age before treatment meant uh, a lot of damage and um, power chair by the time I was 16. 
And um, I eventually became a writer, which is something that work, work I've done for a long time, along with advocacy and, and combining both of them. And it all started on my blog, The Seated View. And everything I do as a writer and advocate um, connects to my goal to shine a light on what it's like to live with chronic illness and disability, um, areas of life that's often unseen or dismissed or not considered. And I write about all aspects of life, including the times I bump up against a barrier or discrimination. <coughs> Excuse me. Allergy season. Um, so several years ago, I wrote a post for my blog about the barriers women with disabilities encounter in mammography. And I shared my own experience of not receiving breast cancer screening due to numerous accessibility barriers in both the clinic and the mammography machine. And it was sort of the, it was the trigger for my becoming more involved in, in advocating for health equity for disabled people. Um, and the more you look, the, the, the less consideration that is of accessibility, mostly because people tend to think if you put in a ramp and an elevator, that's, you know, that's pretty much done, which is, of course, not the case. Mm -hmm. And um, as Natasha, I was approached um, and asked by you uh, if I were interested in co-authoring um, this this article blending kind of the, a narrative and and some recommendation and it's been an incredible experience we both have a deep commitment to identifying and removing barriers to people with disabilities and each of us brought our own area of expertise to the experience and I think this kind of collaboration is a really important step towards discussing the lack of disability equity in healthcare and beginning to remove the barriers. Yes, I agree. And I think just a shout out to Lelani and Lloyd, who's um, our patient partner at JMIRS, um, who was also instrumental in contacting you, Lena, because I know that you guys know each other. We do. Uh, yeah. And well, and I and I know she's written a piece or co-written a piece that focused on on another aspect of imaging. And I think this is really important to have the voice of the service recipient, if you will, also known as a patient, but um, but it is being a service recipient and I think is really important. Her paper is also just excellent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, as I said, I, I really enjoyed the, the blend in your paper of the personal, but also the expertise from you as a service user or patient. Um, and then the background from Natasha, who's kind of got a deep understanding of this from the technical point of view, if you like. And as you said, Natasha, it seems to be an under-researched area and you couldn't find much. Like I know, Natasha, you've done a webinar that you mentioned that I found. Um, but why do you think there's so little understanding or research in this area? Oh, I think you're muted. <laughs> Sorry. That's such a tough question to answer. Uh, I find that even during my master's thesis, doing the research for intellectual disabilities and breast cancer, there was just, that, that was back in 2015. There was very little research to find, and that continues today. 
And I just find underserved and under um, vulnerable populations tend to have just way less research around them just kind of as a whole. So this is just another popular, one of the many other populations that just, there's not a lot of research and especially like breast specific research is already a narrow field. Then you couple the both together and there's very little done. Uh, I just think it's, it needs to be, I, I don't, I think it's harder if you want individual researchers to take up this because there needs to be some level of an interest for just a general researcher to take this up. For me, it was that I have a, it, it impacts my family and I work in breast. So it kind of coupled together to bring me to do this kind of research. I think it's important that bigger organizations, government organizations start this type of research because I think that the lower levels, it's unless it's pushed or mandated, it's not re really gonna get done, unfortunately. Mm. What do you think, Lena? Because we, we've talked before and we recently published a paper on the narratives in JMRS and we talked quite a bit about the patient voice, but the difficulty and how it, difficult it is for people to listen to patients, not necessarily for patients to be heard because we just don't listen to the experts. What, what do you think, Lena? Well, <laughs> I think it starts with calling people patients. Um, in the sense that the patient, the healthcare system is kind of made to where the patient is acted upon by the active people within the healthcare system. Um, and, and I think there is kind of a perception that in the culture of healthcare that patients don't have much input. Um, and I think the healthcare system has been slow to recognize patient equity barriers. And although that's changing for some populations and disabled populations, it, it tends to be forgotten when we talk about inclusion. And that's not just in the healthcare, it's in society at large, and you'll see these barriers and discrimination in every area of life. And one of the vivid areas was the pandemic. There was, there, there was an awful lot of disability discrimination inherent in that in those years. If you pay attention to what's mentioned when people and organizations talk about diversity and inclusion, they will include a variety of equity seeking groups with disabilities rarely on the list. And once you're into, it tuned into that, it becomes impossible not to notice. And it's like, hang on, you forgot somebody. Um, and I think this kind of lack of visibility has ripples including in the literature and research dedicated to addressing systemic healthcare barriers. Um, for instance, it, as it, one of the things we did when we were looking at the article and couldn't find much of anything on um, disabled people and mammography and cancer screening in general, we tried a couple of others of those, we used to call them minority groups, but I like the, the, the terminology of equity seeking groups. And you will actually find quite a few articles on sexism, racism, or homophobia, increasingly it material and barriers for transgender people, as well as programs designated to eliminate discrimination for all those groups. But there's very little for disability. And if you're looking at women's health care for a for those who, who are disabled, such as mammography. There was a few papers between 
2000, 2010, but it appears everyone has lost interest after that. And it has very real life consequences for, for people's health. And I agree with Natasha is that this, I think there is something that needs to be done on all levels. I think as an individual tech or clinic or patient, um, you can begin to talk about it, to push about it, to make it a topic that you're delving into. But likewise, clinics, hospitals need to start talking about this and need to start doing accessibility audits of all their patient areas and staff area too, because people with disabilities work as well. Um, but as well, it does need to come from governments in sense of like, we have the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act in Ontario, for instance, and they are starting to look at healthcare. Um, but there's a lot of gaps. And, and I think that we all need to start talking about what are the consequences for this lack of inclusion. And, and I would love to see both government funded or any funding source funding some studies on how things changed from the last time we saw papers on the prevalence of mammography, breast exam, pap smears for women with for people with disabilities. Has there been any changes, which I suspect not? Um, for instance, one thing I we can focus on because a lot of our information actually came from media articles and they pop up on a regular basis about people who have been denied access to cancer screening uh, because they're disabled, because the clinics aren't accessible. And at one point in Quebec, not too long ago, well, fairly years ago, but <laughs> in the sense of not too long, um, the then premier came out and said that he would no longer fund inaccessible clinics, like you had to be accessible in order to receive uh, government funding to run your clinic. That still hasn't happened. It was a really good statement, but it hasn't been implemented as far as we can see. So that's one of the, it's like it made for a great headline, but you check back several years later, there's been no action. So that's that's kind of the tricky. And I think we have, the more we talk about it, the more we bring visibility and it's hard to ignore things that are visible. Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's beautifully put. Thanks, Lena. Um, there are some really fantastic recommendations to create an inclusive breast screening environment in your paper. Can you briefly highlight the three categories that you discussed of obstacles that lead to disabled people being at high risk for delayed breast cancer diagnosis? Um, do, you, do you want to go for, uh, Natasha, do you want to go from it from like clinic and, and tech and I'll kind of go from it from a user perspective? Yes, sounds perfect. So in terms of like, I think on terms of our end, in terms of the tech perspective, tech perspective that the barriers um, that kind of we play a role in are the social barriers. So it's the attitudes and behaviors of the health professionals, us ourselves. We like we go to school and you go to x-ray school for four years and then you take a couple courses to become a mammographer tech and then you're trained by your colleagues. If your colleague 
doesn't really have the skills or didn't have a person train them who worked with people with disabilities, worked with people with different ability levels, worked with people in wheelchairs, that's your resource for training. That's not really a great resource because they didn't have someone to train them. So it's trickling, the poor training trickles down the line because you go to x-ray school and you have formal training on how to do a hand x-ray and how to do blah, blah, all the party parts. But for mammography, it's you're trained on site. So it's whoever is at your location is training you versus a more formalized training that you were got in your initial schooling. So this can be problematic when you're working with a different population with different needs, different strategies need to be accomplished to, to achieve the same goal. So this is one thing that's really problematic, which actually led me to creating this webinar as some level of a resource to provide people who maybe has never done a patient with, in a wheelchair. Like you could potentially do, go through most of your career depending on where you're working and not. I maybe do maybe one or two a year. Like it's not necessarily, depending on your location, you might not, depending on the day you're working, you just might not mm. come across it as often as other people may. So you may not have the skills and the training to even know where to start. So this is a huge thing and I find at least in my experience in doing patients, because I was fortunate to have an excellent mammographer train me. So I was a very lucky person. I, she trained me in how to do people in wheelchairs. So I was, and she was a really good technologist. So I was very fortunate to be trained by someone so skilled, but not everyone is so lucky. So when you have someone potentially coming in with a wheelchair and you're not even sure where to start, it's a very difficult time. And then for the user, you're looking at us, right? We're the professionals. We're supposed to know what to do. And we don't even really know what to do. We're not necessarily confident. We're a little bit nervous. And so this is not really a good situation. So our nervous energy is also, you're, I'm sure you're gonna feel it. <laughs> you're gonna see it. So this is not really a situation that's gonna make the most positive mammogram experience. And I find once, especially if someone like more vulnerable has a negative experience with a mammogram, like they're not coming back. They're not coming back. Maybe they'll come back, but you know, they're going to think about it. They're not just automatically going to rebook. They're going to think about whether they want to go through that experience again, especially if it was a negative one, which is why in my webinar, I really highlighted like communication strategies and that mammography really is a, it's a team sport. Like we have to work together to accomplish this goal because that's the only way we're going to be able to do it well. So I think that's so important. Like we need to make sure the experience is good because one negative experience can mean someone doesn't come back for five years, which is very problematic. Um, and then for us also in the clinic itself, it's procedure, how we talk to our patients upon intake, making sure we ask the right questions so that we understand the accessibility needs. So that when the patient gets to the tech, the tech knows, okay, this patient, my patient at one o'clock is going to be in a wheelchair. Let me gather all the things I may potentially need for that patient. So I have it all in the room ready. So I'm not scrambling, looking for things and feeling flustered. Having more time to do these exams. So you, again, you're not feeling rushed. You know, you have the time to do it. Often mammal clinics are back to back. They're very busy. So having the extra time to be able to devote to that patient without feeling the pressure of the time constraint is super important to reduce that barrier as well. And as well as having someone else, like having another technologist 
when you're doing someone that may have different needs is extremely helpful. Even just to bounce ideas off of, okay, based on this, we're all, we're all going to collaborate together and we're going to discuss, this is what we kind of, what we want the end product to be something along here. Now let's discuss as a group, how we can get there together and how we can achieve that goal image to the best of our, the best of our ability. So I think kind of those are the social and the procedure intake barriers are on the clinic side. I think one of the biggest barriers that we need to mitigate to make sure when someone with a disability comes in has a more pleasant experience. Mm, thank you. I love the mammography as a team sport. So one of the players being Lena. What do you think, Lena? Well, I love the way um, Natasha said it in the article. She said it's like a dance. And if you think of any dance, there's always two people involved, like, and, and one person can ruin it completely. <laughs> and I think a lot of what Natasha mentioned are things I encountered myself because I, when I asked for accommodation, I was met with a, a brick wall on, on a number of occasions, and I just didn't try again. Because I had, like I'm, I'm not afraid to ask for accommodation, and I'm not afraid to push. But when you do it twice, it's like oh. And then once I came into the clinic, they had previously had a, a seated check-in, and then they had changed it to a standing check-in, where the person could like my head was lower than the actual counter. And it's like, and there wasn't room for a wheelchair and a waiting room. And it was really obvious that I wasn't welcome. And I think that's one of the things that you have to consider as a clinic and the clinic staff is what, what you're communicating around everyone's welcome. We treat everyone here because if, if there isn't room for someone in a mobility aid um, in the, in the waiting room, if there's only a standing check-in. If there's steps, God forbid, um, to the clinic, then you're telling very loud and clear, you are not welcome here. We don't treat people like you. Um, and to be honest, I think the whole idea about you don't fund clinics that aren't accessible, it's, I think that's a very good idea because money speaks. But I think from a physical, structural accessibility, it things like, um, even if it is accessible with a level entrance and, and the accessibility is more than just that ramp or more than the elevator, it's are there automatic door openers throughout to create an, a barrier-free path of travel? Is there a, set, a frequency policy? Is the decor, um, has the decor been designed with consideration of things like um, migraine and seizure risks and sens other sensory elements. Is it that you have an automatic door open, but you're blocking it with a nice display of flowers? Uh, it's little things like that. Is that bathroom? Is that a family bathroom? Because it, it, to an apartment like that, my partner comes with me. And if there's only male and female washrooms, we've got nowhere to go. Um, and, and like that, uh, as Natasha said as well, do you have actually do we have the ability to have someone else in the room? Because I brought my partner who, when I was getting this test done, 
there were foam blocks in my chair and etc. But he needed to hold me in place. What if I don't have someone who can come with me? What do I do then? What do I do about getting into those ridiculous gowns that for me are way too big, like three sizes too big. And for other people who are taller, bigger, maybe too small, right? So it's like, where is the dignity? Where is the consideration? Have you considered the whole thing? And it is very much in the in the attitude, if somebody is not, is unflappable, <laughs> when presented, hi, I'm your patient, and they don't kind of go, <laughs> right? That means a lot. Somebody would just ask questions. Um, but I also say, <clears throat> when we talk about social, and I think this is a systemic issue, that the fact that, A, there's no formal training that shows the invisibility because we are not even considered and that's a problem but if you have somebody in the clinic who has whether it's experience with somebody who's who's transgender which is a unique situation or since my wheelhouse is disability i'll stick there um if somebody has experience in creative positioning management of that clinic should take advantage of that and say you try this before let's start here that you teach your colleagues we will get better training like not better necessarily more formalized training later but utilize the experience of the techs you have who have probably somebody has this experience and if they don't then have a conversation about what do we do if somebody can't stand? What do we do if somebody has limited mobility in their shoulders? So like start talking just as a team about what are you doing, right? And where, what are some of the barriers you can identify yourself? Um, and and I, I also just want to second a bit in a fashion statement about when somebody books the appointment, it should be mandatory to also include a question about do you have any accessibility needs? Because that again shows you are welcome here. We will figure it out. We may not have the infrastructure yet, but we will help you figure it out. Yeah, it makes me think about power and hierarchy as well, right? Because it sounds like it can get a bit messy, but you're relying on each other. So sometimes as technologists, we, we're used to you know, being in charge and being able to, mm -hmm. to do what we need to do, but it, it involves a little bit of humility and giving over some of that and asking the, the person in front of you because they know themselves best, like how are we going to work through this? So that that might be um well um, and and I and I think yes, you're absolutely right, this power and hierarchy. And I know for me the difference between a good experience in a healthcare system and a bad one is is the person aware that I am the expert in my body? Does the person consult me or does treat me like a basic lump of meat, you know? Um, and, and, and it's little things like if somebody uses a mobility aid, ask consent before you touch it. Because this is part of me. It is not a chair that you have. It is... For me, it's, you do not have the right to just touch it, just as you don't have a right to go up and touch someone without their consent. 
So it, it's just like the, the question of saying, I haven't done this before, but we'll figure it out together and let's work together. That tells me that you will listen to what I say you should do and not do. So then I have faith I won't come out of it injured. And I think that's such a great point because, and that's one of the points I really try to push home that we're working together and you, exactly, you guys are the experts of your body. We are the experts of the machine and the goal, but you guys are the experts of our, your body, right? And it's really about collaborating and us working together to achieve the goals both of us want. We want to produce good images for you. We want to get, you want to get good images so you get a good diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just so important that, yeah, some, some of us as techs put our pride aside thinking we know it all. There's one way to do it. You got to do it this way and collaborating and figuring out creative ways to have the same end result. Well, and I think in general, mammography clinics, at least the ones where I have been, they're very aware that it's a delicate and anxious time. So I know there's been a lot of effort into trying to make the environment nice and comforting. Um, and one of the barriers I actually encountered, I encountered was about 10, 10, 15 years ago, where the ultrasound gel was it was had fragrance to help people feel better, you know. And I would come out, out of that test with an asthma attack that lasted three days because I can't handle fragrance. And when I asked if they had fragrance free, they, they, as I said in the, in the article, they searched the teaching hospital high and low and there was none. So like it's, it's little things like that, that's something that you go, oh, this will be nice because people like a nice scent. And the question always has to be, is this nice thing we're doing or is this necessary thing we're doing? Are there any barriers in that? And I think, and I think, just asking the question is going to get you a long way. Thank you. So we've we've talked quite a bit about sort of some of the foundational issues and some ways that um, we can help or better education, um, that sort of thing. But retrofitting a clinic or putting some of these things into a clinic can be quite expensive, especially structural things, and they can take time. So can you think of some sort of easy and low cost ways to increase accessibility that clinics and maybe individual mammography techs can do right now? Well, I think I think we've already in we've indicated quite a few as we're talking and we have a long list here in the article. Um, I think flexibility, I think awareness goes a long way in dealing with the social aspect, dealing with the commitment to take this seriously. Um, but some of the physical accessibility, I think, as I said, automatic door openers everywhere um, and accessible changing room, uh, which means it needs to be bigger, at, at least one accessible exam room and one accessible um, um, mammography room. It's things like widening doors can really make a difference. And if it's not a bearing wall, the widening the door should be relatively inexpensive. Um, have positioning aids such as foam blocks and pillows, um, adjustable, adjustable exam tables. 
uh, are very important and there should be at least one in the clinic. And ideally, when you are replacing exam, exam tables, they should all be replaced with accessible ones. Uh, they're adjustable, they can go up and down. Having a hoarder lift, so somebody who cannot transfer or weight bear um, and training in how to use it. Like th there's a lot of little things on our list that are doable and a lot of procedural and social aspects that are doable. But the first big step is to start asking the question, where are the barriers and what can we do to start removing them while we work with others in this association to get the funding to make bigger structural changes. I think it's important as well as when someone with a disability is kind of seeking out a clinic to go do their mammograms. Like for example, if you're living in a big city like Toronto, it's very easy to find a mammo clinic. Like certain places there's like five in a kilometer. Like, so depending on where you live, finding one is easy. There are a lot to choose from but whether or not you're finding one that meets your needs can be kind of a different story. So I think it's important, like as we're working to transition to obviously make everywhere accessible, but this is, if we're being realistic, it's gonna be a lengthy process. I think at least in the meantime, what should be done is, for example, when you're looking up to find a mammo clinic, like most provincial programs will have a list of all the clinics in an area or in the province. Having that list, highlight the accessibility aspects of the sites. So if this place has a Hoyer lift and this place does not, when I'm looking on the website, I can see, oh, I know I need a Hoyer lift. Can I filter by places that have a Hoyer lift? So I can just now call five places instead of maybe 15 to figure out who has the tools that I'm gonna need. I know I'm gonna need to be able to complete this exam. Like that's something that's relatively easy for the, like a provincial body to do to establish what locations have what things and easily provide that on their website. So when you're yeah, going I, to look, you can just filter, you can be like, okay, they have this, 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 this. All right, I'm yeah. gonna go to that site. Because I know, at least I know at this time they have it while everyone works towards kind of becoming more holistically accessible. In the meantime, at least that's kind of a, a step towards. Well, and I think that the, like the resource you made for York region, something like that should be available in every region. Um, and maybe again, be, could it be added to the website and have that filtering thing? Like if I can filter within this many kilometers, then give me an opportunity to filter for accessibility and then have a list. This is what we have, right? Um, I also think it's really important like we talk a lot about what happens once we get to a clinic, but I think we also need to, and perhaps again, this is min various provincial ministries of health and their job to make sure that once you have a resource, you make sure that family doctors understand that this is a specialty population and you may need to initiate the conversation because I find a lot of in healthcare, it depends on the patient identifying that I need this. And if I am regularly bumping up about against barriers, will I ask my family doctor about a mammogram? Probably not. And um, and and I think like having 
widening the conversation to making sure that family doctors are aware that this is an issue, this is a resource, because like we are assuming this resource will be developed, it should be, that this is a resource and I will, and this is one way I can help advocate for my patient and make sure that they get the same care as other patients, um, because they think there is, with disability, like when there's a disability, it's often mainly focused on the condition that has caused you to have a disability. It's called, I believe it's called diagnosis blindness, which is unfortunately an ableist term describing ableism. Um, so, so you just don't consider the general health. You just thought like I have rheumatoid arthritis, so that's all we focus on. We don't focus on things like pap test, mammograms, stress test, and things like that, because we can we can widen the scope eventually to ripples to other areas of health that are also not accessible. So, so I, th I think it's a is a is a systemic problem with a systemic solution. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and I think we touched on sort of education, but just to you know, reiterate, like read the paper. There's a lot of amazing tips in there and hints and a call for action. And if you're a mammographer or medical radiation technologist, watch Natasha's webinar, get some more information from that. Um, you made a call to action at the end of the paper to remove barriers. Um, you definitely touched on some provincial, local, um, individual things that people can do. Just as we're wrapping up, is there anything that you want to add at the end? Any more um, things that you think or you would like to see as next steps? I, I think I would very much hope that this is the start of a conversation that if someone listens to this, they take it back to their place of work and say in the next team meeting, hey, we need to talk about this. Um, and I hope that anyone out there who has some decision-making power will start including this in their annual goals and their 10-year ten, ten plans in terms of developing this. Um, I think it's important to remember that you need, you must include consultation with the disabled community in this. Like, don't do this for someone which unfortunately healthcare system again tends to be, we act upon someone. Don't do that because you're not the expert in this. Uh, the disabled community is the expert. Um, and I also think the last thing I want to say is that if there's anyone who has a disability listening to this, ask for what you need. And if everybody else your age is getting a mammogram, then you must get one too or what you, it's your right to get one in, in our system. And it might be harder for you to get there, but don't give up because part of the problem is that people with disabilities have a lot on their plate. Uh, and we unfortunately don't have much of a voice in the system. And when you're busy just managing your life, and finances, for instance, if somebody is on social assistance, that is, there's a big conversation in Ontario right now about the Ontario Disability Support Program, which is essentially enforced poverty. 
um, that you're very busy. <laughs> it's like your day to day, you may not be thinking about your health and your doctor is not mentioning, but push for it. I think, and and I think individual techs and clinics need to also make sure that it's it's a topic of conversation. I think those are some excellent points. I completely agree in terms of a call to action for the technologist. Mine would just be educate yourself. Really try to find. I know the resources are are very limited, but it's important we really try to seek out these additional resources so that we at least have some knowledge when we do encounter someone with a disability. So we at least have a little bit of something to work with and a, a starting point to kind of jump off from. I think it's important that clinics really take an internal reflection upon themselves and look at their institutions and see even the little things like you said whether there's a flower in front of of the um like op the door opener i'm losing my words here um, but like the little things like that even just to make sure like those are not prevalent in your institution making sure that they're seating those are very small small things that they can do just to make the space way more welcoming so i just urge them to you know, the next time you go to work, the next time you're in your clinic is to do a walkthrough and think about what are the little things that you guys can change that to make your your institution more welcoming. And that when you do do the next person that has a disability is to ask for their feedback. That's what I did when I first started. I would ask for feedback. Like, how was it? What could, what are things with a, in this institution that you encountered during this during your way to get this mammogram? What are some things that happened that maybe didn't go your way or you would like changed the mammogram experience itself? Like, was there anything that could have been better? Because through feedback, that's the only really way we're gonna learn. And some people, you know, you're nervous. You don't really wanna just give feedback, but if you're asked, you may be a little bit more prone to have a conversation about how your experience really was. So I think it's important for us as techs to probe for that additional information so that we can make the changes to make the environment and the experience that much better. Well, and it, it also, it, it means that if you have had a couple of patients who said this particular thing was really hard, then we're back to the next team meeting. You said, okay, they have some feedback, exactly. right? And that's how the change started. And it's one of, it's an informal consultation but maybe it's something that should be asked of every patient that there is at the end is like, how was your experience today? And I think that's one of the ways we can help healthcare change is seeing it more as a customer service experience, not just as well, people come in here and we do things to them because it is a customer service industry, which very few people kind of realize. Um, because to Natasha's point, a bad experience will keep somebody away and they will lose faith. And it's really easy to lose. It doesn't take much to lose faith when you are naked and having a stranger hold your breast. Anything in that experience is going to say, okay, I'm never coming back. Right? So I think understanding that what you're dealing with is a person, any person, because it could be that that person who doesn't look disabled has an invisible disability that made this hard for them. Or they have a disability that's not physical that made this hard. So I think that communication is vital. I think that's a lovely place to end, like asking somebody individually rather than relying on the kind of clunky way that we normally try and gather feedback in hospital. That's, that's a, a perfect thing to do.
Um, so I'd just like to end by thanking you both and saying that we'll put some links into the quote unquote show notes or the links that go along with the podcast um, for people, including the paper. And I'd just like to thank you guys again for such a lovely, rich and informative conversation. And I know that what you've done individually, but also what you've done together in this paper is going to make a big difference. And I'm looking forward to seeing um, the ripples of that and also what you do next. So thank you. Thank you so thank much you for, for, for the opportunity you. as well. Thanks. So that's a wrap. Thank you for listening today. Our current edition is available at jmirs.org. And we hope that you continue to listen and that you can join us next time. Thank you.